We are so often uh, moved and inspired and influenced by things that we have prominently in our view. This has a huge formative effect on us. For example, when you hear a story of character or sacrifice or boldness or somebody extending tremendous mercy or, or uh, beautiful justice, these are things that inspire us. These are stories, you know, whether it's a, a documentary that you watch or something that you read, a film that inspires you. We, we just, we see these things and there's something inside us that inspires us, says, you know, I want to emulate those qualities in my life. We can look at things, uh, have things in our view like fashion, art, uh, the beauty of music, architecture, and these kinds of, uh, the beauty in art, it also has this formative impact on us. We say, oh, I like that, I love that, I, I can see that in our home, and it influences the way that we uh, design our homes. We see the beauty of fashion and art, we say, oh, I like that, and next thing you know, our wardrobe begins to shift and, and, and morph, and, and our uh, physical appearance uh, shifts and changes by things that inspire us. Somebody walks by and says, oh, I love that haircut, actually, I wonder if I could pull that off. Can somebody Photoshop that hair, you know, on my face? Oh, yes, I think I'll have that this week. We are... We are um, we are influenced and formed by the things that we have predominantly in our view. Uh, when we see the glory of God in nature, the wonder of the stars, the glory of the ocean, th this is something that touches our soul in a profound way. We see the glory of God in people as they execute, you know, God's uh, generous acts of mercy and love and justice. These things have a formative effect. Our text today is Romans chapter 12. And when you get to Romans 12, from Romans 12 to the end of the book is all about Christian living. The first 11 chapters is about the scandal of God's grace, the glory of God's grace, what he has done. And then in chapter 12 to the end, there's this huge pivot where in view of what he's done, in view of his mercy, in view of the beauty of everything that we behold, it ought to have a formative effect. And so from chapter 12 to uh, 16, there is a call to inner transformation uh, to live these lives of love and service that are inspired by Jesus. He is that formative beauty. That he is the compelling and impacting, reorienting and re-envisioning image of grace. And so this call to transformation, this call to the Christian life, this is a liberating call. It's a liberating call because the perfect life that Jesus lived that we're never going to live, that he lived on our behalf, his perfect act of obedience before God and his passive obedience on the cross to take our punishment, that is a, a beautiful image of grace, of what he has done for us. His atoning death that takes away all of our sin so that even though our day-to-day -day experience is that we're still sinful, we stand before God declared completely righteous and his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ which is an image that he has defeated death, giving us the hope that you and I will not be held permanently by death. It's liberating. It's liberating because now we look at the Christian life, we look at this call to transformation, not for payment, but from pleasure. We're going to start reading today in Romans chapter 11, verses 33, right at the end, because we really need the context. And we're going to go to chapter 12, uh, chapter 12 verse 8. Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and his paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? 
Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to discern and approve what the will of God is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to each and every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If a gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. And if it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is God's word. As I said earlier, from here to the end of the book is this focus on Christian living. And I want you to notice what the motivating force is. I, I really preached last week on verses 1 to, to 3 on, on this transformation and this call to give ourselves as living sacrifices, which in the Greek is give yourself as a living killing. In other words, this is ongoing dying to death of self as we live to the glory of God. But I want, what I want you to notice is the motivator. The motivator for the Christian life is like a current that's constantly compelling us to get in the flow. And it's gratitude for grace. You see, the end of chapter 11 is spontaneous worship. All of chapter 11 is actually about God's sovereign grace and saving Israel. And as Paul's thinking about it, he just explodes into spontaneous worship. And do you see that? Chapter 11, verses uh, 33 uh, to the end of the chapter. After he explodes into spontaneous worship, he goes, "Ah, Therefore, in view of this picture, may we now live. You see that? That's the motivator for... uh, the Christian life. It's not just a nice flow, uh, a nice thought. That's the flow of the text. And so the apostle, captivated by this view of, of, uh, of God's goodness, calls us to this. And every descriptor of spiritual transformation, you can find it in the nature of Christ. You can find it walked out by Christ. And this is because the definition of what it is to be fully human, of what it is to be fully alive, is Jesus Christ. He's the picture of humanity perfected. He's the picture of what it is to be fully alive and fully human. And so being transformed to resemble Christ gradually and increasingly, right? That's what it is for you to become fully human. That's what it is for you to become fully yourself. The more, to the degree that you and I increasingly and gradually emulate Christ is the degree that we become truly ourselves. We're going to look at two things this morning. Um... And the, uh, to kind of break out this, this call to transformation. The first one is that transformation flows from having a God's mercy in view and a sober self-view. That's where this, be- this text begins to instruct us. And the second thing is that transformation is the ongoing work of God's grace, empowering us to live like we don't belong to us. So let's look at the first thing. This transformation... Uh, in relation to a sober self-view. You know, the logical conclusion of everybody who calls God Father is to bear the resemblance of their father and to look like their big brother Jesus. 
That's logical. That's actually what the Greek means where it says, you look at the text there in uh, verse 1, it says, this is your true and proper worship. The Greek word, the Greek there is logiken, which means this is logical worship, which is a funny way to think about worship. We're like, worship is experiential. It is. But Paul says, actually, this is the logical conclusion of grace, that we emulate Jesus and that we actually look like him. And so when you look at verse 1, he says, we, you know, God's uh, mercy is in view. And so this is not a, Jesus' example is no longer crushing because who could live up to it? It's actually liberating. And the reason it's liberating is because it's re-envisioning. It's just like you, look, you watch the film and there's this inspiring story and you go away going like, boy, I'd love to see more of that in my life. Jesus is the ultimate personification of that. Jesus was transcendent and tender, powerful and patient, merciful and just, compassionate and bold, loving, kind, gentle. None of us, of course, can... None of us can replicate that, but all of us can imitate it, and that's what we're called to, this imitation. And so, with God's mercy in view, we collide with Christ-likeness, and the only response to a collision with Christ-likeness is to want more of his likeness. And so, of course, it's not for payment, but it's, it's pleasure. And actually, as chapter 12 rolls out, you're going to find 26 examples. Paul gives 26, just in chapter 12 alone, of what it actually looks like to live this Christian life and to begin to emulate Jesus. So this morning we're just going to explore what's given to us in verses 3 to 8. And so in this list, like many lists in the New Testament, it's not exhaustive. It's not intended to be exhaustive. It's intended to cause you and I to be reflective. And, uh, and so as we are um, doing this, we see that God's intention is that we emulate Christ's life of love and service, but you and I do it in distinct ways using our Unique God-given gifts is what we're being called into. Look at verse 3, and it says that transformation, the first thing that happens in transformation, verse 3, is it begins with a sober, realistic view of yourself. And the only way that a Christian can have a sober, realistic view of self, right, uh, is to have God's mercy in view. That helps me have a proper self-view, right, going back to verse 1. Author and apologist Tim Keller was the pastor at New York uh, Redeemer says this about God, about the God, about God's view. It's that God's mercy reminds us we're far worse than we care to admit, but we're also more loved than we dare imagine. The importance of that is that when we recognize what the gospel says about us, it helps us have a sober self-view. Because when God's mercy is not in our view, we, we do not have a sober self-view. We will either have an inflated self-view, or we will have a, a very low self-view. But we're definitely not going to have a sober self-view. And so what we find here and throughout the entire Bible is that we're continually warned of the dangers of the egocentric view. And ironically, whether you think too much of yourself or you think nothing of yourself, both of those things are egocentric because the focus is the self. Manifest in two completely different ways, but it's a problem. And uh, in 2002, there was an article in the New York Times written by a psychotherapist and author. Her name is uh, Lauren Slater. And she wrote an article called The Problem with Self-Esteem. And what she had found is that in her field, a lot of uh, studies were being done saying, well, people who commit uh, hurtful, self-destructive, or even violent acts have low self-esteem. So the solution should be teach children from a very young age to have high self-esteem. And then if they have high self-esteem, they perhaps will not be bullies in the, in the uh, playground or get involved in crime, these kinds of things. What she found, being a psychotherapist, working with people who had 
committed hurtful and violent, terrible things. In fact, speaking with a murderer, in one case, as she was doing therapy with someone who had committed murder, what she found was that the people who were committing things did not have a low self-view. They actually had a very high self-view, and their high self-view was what actually caused them to be bullies in the playground and caused them to commit hurtful acts because the view that they had of themselves was so high, their self-view negated the views of the people that were around them. And so we can trace that all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, God says, here's the proper view. I'm the creator, you're the creation. And to flourish, flourishing looks like obedience to me. And the way that you obey me is you allow me to decide what's good and evil. And our parents go, mm, we think we'll decide what's good and evil. And that temptation and giving into the sin, which of course ended up being divine treason, that inflated self-view has been plaguing humanity since the beginning. And so when we have this inflated self-view, we exaggerate our own wisdom. We exaggerate our own competence or our views or our voice. And if we have a low self-view, then we downplay our wisdom and we downplay our competence and we downplay our view and our voice, but both are self-absorbed. When we have an inflated self-view, we can't live this transformed life because it requires the sober, right? If we have an inflated self-view, we're held captive by what people think. And so we're constantly jockeying for superiority. And I know this because I struggle with this, the inflated self-view. But if you have a low self-view, you're still held captive by what people think. Only instead of jockeying for superiority, you're wallowing in inferiority. And so consider Paul's language, how he describes it. What's going to be the first thing that's going to enable me to begin to live into this loving, serving life of emulating Jesus? He says, be sober. What a great image. The opposite of being drunk. Right? And so he gives us this. He goes, the problem with impaired people is that impaired people don't see properly, correct? And so if a person gets drunk and they reach for their keys, of course it's a problem, you know, sure it's problematic that their vision is unsuitable to drive, but the root problem is that in their drunken self-view, they're convinced they're fine to drive. And so when we are drunk, we don't see situations well. We don't read Uh, rooms well we don't process decisions well right that's why it's not a good idea you know you you should not drive drunk you should not text your boss when you're drunk you should not text your ex when you're drunk you should not go online and buy things on amazon when you're drunk like there's a lot of things you shouldn't do when you're drunk because the way you're seeing everything is off and you wake up the next day and go what did i buy this shirt for i don't need a unicorn riding a spaceship and it happens so Paul says you've got to be sober. So really a good question for us to take to prayer before we even get to breaking out these gifts and what, what they can mean and what they can look like is, Lord, am I sober? That's a good prayer. Lord, am I sober? Am I, am I drunk on my delusions of my power, my privilege, my success? Am I drunk because I'm depressed that I don't have any power or privilege or success? Am I I drunk because I'm afraid of failure and it's driving my life? Am I drunk because I think I'm a failure and that's driving my life? Am I drunk on the affirmation that I'm continually getting from others? Am I drunk on the rejection that I seem to be getting from others? What is the lens that is forming my self-view? Because the lens that gets you sober is having God's mercy in view, is having the glory of Christ's grace and mercy 
toward you. Having that in view gets you sober. And so when you look at verse 3, after having the sober view of self, verse 3 says, we've all been given a measure of faith. The, the version that I gave uh, that we read this morning uh, said, I think, um, uh, accordance with the faith that's distributed to you. But some of your translations say a measure of faith. And in the Greek, the word is metron. And so as English readers, uh, this is one of the uh, places where we read a measure like it's an amount. I have a certain amount of faith, and it's different than your amount, and it's different than their amount. We all have different amounts. But what it means in the, is metron is measurement, a standard measurement. So what Paul said is, it's act, metron in the Greek is where we get the word meter from. And so what Paul is saying is everybody's got the same. We've all been given the same Jesus. So there's varying degrees of maturity in the church, right? Of course, right? But there's not varying degrees of, of value or dignity, We've all been given the same Jesus. And so in order to have a, 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 a sober self-view, a good place for us to begin is to realize we're not better or worse than the people sitting around us right now. You're not better than the people sitting around you, and you're not worse than the people sitting around you. We've all been given the same Jesus. We're all on the Christ alone bus. bus. There's only one sufficient measurement for faith, and it's Christ alone, and that levels the ground at the foot of the cross. When you look at verse 4, it says that our gifts are distinct, right? Everybody's got different ones. And so in order for us to envision, you know, KW Redeemer here becoming and continually becoming a loving church community, that means this is also going to be a very diverse church community, right? You might, you might be moved and, and passionate about something that is very different than the person sitting next to you, is moved and, and passionate about. And the reason that this is important to consider so we can be sober is because uh, there is a tendency uh, when pride and the self-inflated view gets in there to be like, why am I the only one that sees this need? Why am I the only one that seems to be passionate about this? How come I'm the only one that seems to care about this? As if you're somehow spiritually woke and the people next to you need to like get to your place of wokeness on this need when in reality, they may just be gifted by God to notice and care about and be passionate and burdened by other needs. And so it's important for us to have the sober self-view, and it's important for us to say we've all got the same measurement of faith so that we can be a loving and caring community and not actually end up being a, a community that is judgmental toward each other because we have different um, uh, passions and cares. And so before we get thoughtful about unpacking all of these gifts and... Um, I think it's critical that we note the purpose we've been given the gifts because our culture is very comfortable. Like if I just went right into them, okay, prophecy, let's define them. And I'm going to do that in a minute. But if today's sermon was just like, let's look for our spiritual gifts. We're very comfortable with that. We're like, yeah, because our culture is all, we're like, hey, let's take the test. What's your Myers-Briggs? What are you in the disc? Are you like a DI or are you like an SC? Or like, what's your, what's your, what's your Colby? What are your Enneagram numbers? Like the wing numbers, am I right? What's, um, actually, what, what Harry Potter house are you? I'm Ravenclaw. Which Avenger are you? I hulk out a lot. I'm probably him. Hey, are you more of a Monica or are you a Rachel? What's your spirit animal? If there is a test on the back of a cereal box, it would be like, Captain Crunch says, I'm a natural-born leader. We love assessing ourselves. So before we get into, like, what is my spiritual gift and thinking about that, we got to grapple with why we're given the gifts. And i got to tell you, this need, this, what I'm about to say requires the grace of Jesus and the divine power of the Holy Spirit because within ourselves, we're not going to be up for this. Here it is, the second thing. It is that... Transformation is the ongoing work of God's grace empowering us to live like we don't belong to us. 
And therein is the rub of transformation. See, every day of our lives, there's a voice from someplace preaching to us that the most important thing is our own happiness. And because we're baptized in personal happiness, um, we get to verse 5 and, oof, read it and weep, North American. Like verse 5 says, we don't belong to ourselves. You're like, please tell me I belong to God. Please tell me I belong to God. Well, you do belong to God, but that's pretty easy to wrap your head around, isn't it? I belong to God. It's like this abstract, ethereal thing. The divine creator of the cosmos, I belong to him. You do, but look at verse 5. Look at it. We belong to each other. What? Each member belongs to all the other. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're like, please, Paul, break out some Greek. Tell me, like, it doesn't mean that. It means something else. Guys, I checked. Like, I read it in the Greek. I was like, this might mean something. Nope. The Greek is stronger. So we're just going to stick with the English because that's all you can handle. (laughs) It's all I can handle. We belong to each other? Becoming members of the, of the community. And by the way, I don't mean this in a cultish way, like if you got a job and a vocation and, and you left the community of Redeemer and moved someplace else, that's a problem. And I don't even mean necessarily that. Hopefully we want to be a loving, caring community here. But it inevitably happens in churches when you get this many human beings together. Somebody leaves. And in the event that that should happen, for whatever purpose, and you end up worshiping with our cousins in another church, um, you know, that uh, w- would be a difficult thing and a sorrowful thing to, for us to navigate that relationally if you leave here and worship someplace else. But the bottom line is we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. So I don't want you to see the belong to ourselves in a cultish way, like, if you go, you belong to the devil. What, what this is promoting, you know, it's like, this is a self-serving sermon, never leave Redeemer. What this is trying to get us to understand is the way we ought to relate to the people around us is like with a deep sense of love and care and commitment. See, if I said, how many of you think the pastor should be accountable? 100% of the hands would go up. Oh, that guy, he cannot be a lone ranger. He's got to be accountable. How many of you think you should be accountable? I don't like this sermon at all. I'm not coming back here until he just tells me I'm justified and that's it. Right? Who thinks that... (laughs) Who thinks the pastor can't just do whatever he wants? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Who thinks you should be able to do whatever you want? Yeah, I should be able to do whatever I want. So this text, it just arrests all of us, doesn't it? Whoa. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this transformation. And so we look at this and we see that God has actually prescribed this pathway to truly experience freedom, to truly become human, to truly experience fulfillment, to truly resemble Christ. And to resemble Christ means that for me not to belong to me. And so we see in verses 4 and 5 this interdependence. And it means that you need the people of Redeemer. And the people of Redeemer need you. Now that was hard to grasp in first century Rome when this was written. It was hard then, it's hard now. It was hard then because divisions in the church were, were problematic and were common, right? What socioeconomic class are you? Oh, I'm in a different socioeconomic class, so I'm not sure we can relate. Hey, what ethnicity are you? Oh, I'm not from that ethnicity. I have a different ethnicity, so I'm not sure we can relate. Um, you know, what family are you from? Oh, I'm not, I don't come from a family that's like that. We, I'm not sure we can relate. See, they had these problems in Rome when this, when this letter was hand-delivered, so it was hard then. But it's also hard now because in addition to um, the possibility of struggling with, you know, socioeconomic or ethnic hang-ups, 
us North Americans, we are the most autonomous culture in world history. And that's not my opinion. That's just a uh, sociological fact that there are, uh, you, go, you, you go east and cultures get very communal and how things are. We are incredibly autonomous. And that's not all bad, by the way. Uh, for example, um, there are some helpful things that have come out of, of, uh, of looking at the individual, not just the community. For, for example, uh, many of the causes that have come out of uh, the human rights movement, right, that have been very good as you consider the value and the dignity of each individual. So there are positive and good things that have come out of um, an, an individualistic way of thinking. There are, so that's true. However, uh, with those positive things, there's a huge hurdle for us loving each other um, in this church and training our children to love and care about others in this church because we're constantly baptized in autonomy. Verse 5 essentially we put ourselves in the text saying in Christ the community at Redeemer though many we form one body and each of the members belong uh, to one another so what we really need is the Holy Spirit to melt the ice over our autonomous souls so we can avert our gaze off of ourselves and care for others so then you get this call to action verses 6 to 8 and it instructs us to use our gifts for the purpose of blessing the people who are sitting around us It's not just simply the corporate gathering on Sunday morning where we bless each other, though that is true, but just in our our lives to care, have a care and concern for the people who are around us because we're called to be ministers in the church and we we need to see ourselves as ministers uh, of the church and not reviewers of the church. You're a minister of the church. You're not a connoisseur of church. Connoisseurs are experts in judgment as to whether something is to their liking. How do I feel about that? But we're not, that's not what you've been called into. Hey, how was church today? Well, the music was, I'd give it a three out of five. And oh, they did sing this song I like, four out of five. And Owen did play six instruments at one time. Okay, five out of top, five. <laughs> five out of five for music. The sermon, I'm going to give it a two and a half out of five because I'm not really a Paul guy. And only, I'm more of an Apollos guy. Uh, I don't really like a style. I wish it, our pastor preached like this. I could have given it, but it was short. I got home early. Five out of five. How do I feel about the greeting time? Okay, the kids are going to their class. It's time to get up and like turn your head to look at another human being and greet them. Maybe somebody don't. Ah, two and a half out of five because half the time I care and half the time I wish we never did this. Ah, how do you feel about how did you feel about the coffee and fellowship time after the service? Can't rate it, never stay. Right? What are, we're not connoisseurs of church culture. You know how long it'll take you to find something you don't like about Redeemer? Five minutes. You know? We just about loving and caring each other. We're like this beautiful, dysfunctional family that God has brought together from here north, south, east, and west to care and love each other. We're ministers. And so as we look at the as we look at this, we examine this list. It's not, it's not intended to be exhaustive. It's intended to get us to be reflective, right? For example, working with children is not listed here. Whoa, whoa, big swing and a miss, apostle. No, no, no. It's to get us to think about um, how we can create a culture of care and love. And as you look at these things, these gifts, you're going to notice that transformation, it is supernatural, you know, because obviously we need the Holy Spirit to care about the people who are sitting next to us because our proclivity is to care about ourselves, 
You're like, hey, I care about me and my wife and my kids, or, and that's all the time. I got, hey, I'm a single person. Thank God I'm single. I just got to worry about my life. That's naturally where we want to go. So let's, let, let's look at these gifts and see how they can serve each other. He, he starts out with prophecy. And it's important to maybe note here that prophecy is not getting um, direct downloads, you know, from heaven's throne. That happened all throughout the Old Testament, and there are instances of that in the New Testament. It's likely not the, the theologians and the commentators that I was reading, doing my research here. It's likely not what he's talking about here, having a direct download. And the reason I say that is because in 1 Corinthians 12, um, the apostle says that the prophecies are subject to doctrine. He actually puts the, prophes- the prophets under the apostles, like, let's make sure what you're saying is according to the Bible. And if you were getting direct downloads from heaven, you wouldn't need to check that with anybody. Right? You just be like, hey, God told me, so here it is. Deal with it. Um, so um, anyways, just for your, in, for your knowledge, it'd be helpful to know really what he's talking about here is um, saying things um, th- that are in line with God's word, calling people to God's word. You know, the prophets all throughout scripture, they were constantly recalling the word of the Lord, being given the word of the Lord, calling, calling a wayward people back to the word of the Lord. And most of what the most of what the prophets said was not future telling. Most of it was calling people to repentance. Um, so, you know, if I were to give a criticism of kind of broad brush on North American idea about prophecy today in Canada, uh, you know, it's kind of like, oh, the prophetic, and everybody gets excited about the prophetic, like, you know, let's get to, hey, the prophet's coming. Let's, you know, buy his t-shirt. Well, in the, in the Bible, when the prophet was coming, like, hey, I've got a word from the Lord, people weren't like, ooh, this is going to be amazing. They're like, just before you give it, I'm just going to go over here for about an hour and repent to the God of heaven. Then I'm going to come back and I hear the People were like, so maybe you have this gift of prophecy. And if you do, that's beautiful. Uh, because it will, it, it's you being prompted by the Spirit to recall the wise guidance of God's Word. It means God has gifted you to be bold, to declare His Word, to call people back to His Word. And that's going to serve here at Redeemer. So if you have, if you have the gift of prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with uh, the Scriptures in your faith. Um, he goes on to talk about service and that, you know, practical ways of seeing and hearing about needs. And there's an element in the New Testament church of people very much like we do today, getting ready for the corporate service, running around and doing very practical things for temple worship and for those uh, the worship in the first century church, same as we do here. Um, but there's an ele- another element to it outside of the Sunday morning, which is maybe you're the kind of person who you notice needs and you're compelled to meet them, and they're very practical. You, you hear something, oh, this person could use a meal. This person could use a visit. This person could use a coffee. Maybe this person's in the hospital. I'm going to go visit them. Uh, this person is... You know, they threw their back out. I'm going to shovel their driveway. There's a thousand ways this can work. But it's, it's this gift of just noticing this thing and being moved in your heart to want to do something about it. And I encourage you to, to do that. Um, and North Americans, we're so pragmatic, we want to systematize everything. Hey, does KW Redeemer have a driveway shoveling ministry where when, uh, we just call the pastor and then he organizes the drive? No, we don't have that. It's called the gift of service. And when you think of it, you notice it. You, know, you find it, you fix it. The Holy Spirit drew your attention to that. It's a gift. It's beautiful. Um, then you've got teaching, which is to convey the truths of God's word with clarity, the ability to make complex things understandable. And maybe you have that gift with children. You're great at teaching kids, which is t- tremendously difficult. So hats off to all of our teachers. Uh, maybe, maybe your teaching gift comes alive in living rooms, in coffee shops. But if you've got that teaching gift, teach. Uh, you know, draw people to the goodness of God's word. Make the truths clear. 
Uh, put them on the ground so people know how to walk them out. And encouragement, here is another one. In the Greek, uh, and I give it be, simply because it it's, gives an interesting richness to encouraging. Um, it's it's parakaleo, which means to come alongside and counsel, to look, come alongside somebody and support them. And it doesn't mean your, your vocation is that you are a professional counselor. It means that God has gifted you with the heart and the ability, the desire to, you, you sense people's pain and hurt, and there's something about in you that wants to just put your arm around them, come alongside them, and encourage them. And if that is your gift, then use that gift uh, here in this, this, uh, this community. Uh, and you've got this gift of giving, where all of us are instructed to give of our finances to preserve the gospel. Uh, and the whole church is instructed to give generously to preserve the gospel. We see them doing that in the New Testament. But this, this gift of giving, uh, what, you'll, what you see, not, not just in the New Testament, but historically, is there are some people that God has really blessed uh, with the means and the wisdom to accrue wealth, like inordinate amounts of wealth. And so they're able to give in an unusual uh, proportions of wealth, and they get great joy in doing that, and you find that um, that they use it for, uh, for kingdom work. Uh, the, the rich person that owned the upper room that the apostles were able to use, that Jesus was buried in the, in the tomb of, uh, of a rich man who made that tomb available for the burial of Christ, and on and on. You've got examples throughout church history of this. And maybe that's your... Maybe that's your gift, and you can look around and say, um, you know, I, I seem to be accruing wealth, and regardless of what's happening in the economy, God blesses me. You know, people lose their jobs. I don't lose my job. I get promoted. Why is that? It's this gift of God uh, for you to uh, provide for your family and provide for the gospel generally, uh, generously. And then you've got leadership, which is the ability to um, articulate the mission. You see this happening in the New Testament, articulating the mission, rallying people to the cause, uh, the ability to have people follow you to accomplish it. And maybe you've got this gift of leadership and you can rally and mobilize people to a cause. So you consider, what could that look like here at Redeemer? What could that look like in this city? You know, we're a very young church. We're coming up on five years old and there's lots of ministries that don't exist today, but they will. And it won't be because um, the elders and I do all of them. It'll be because many of you have leadership gifts and you'll actually um, further the cause of many of the ministries that we do in this city. And then you've got mercy here, which is to be motivated to care for those who are in need, right? Giving of your time and your love, practical visits to the, to the poor and the sick, those with addictions, the elderly, those who are in prison. So maybe that's you, and you've, you find that your heart is drawn to the marginalized. You know, and I, this is critical. And I want to give a special encouragement to the mercy-motivated people who are in here. Um, your gift is critical and needed, but I want you to take note of how you're supposed to minister um, as with all the gifts, but it's interesting because it says if you're given the gift of mercy, do it cheerfully. You know, all of us with all of our gifts have the challenge of pride and impatience that other people don't see what we see. And when you're working with the marginalized, there's a great temptation to actually not minister cheerfully. There's a, there's a temptation to, to minister angrily. Why am I the only one that seems to see that there's a, how come 10 people can walk by this need? We've all done it. We can all do it. And so, and so you've been given this glorious gift of noticing what most of us walk right past. And it's not because we don't love Jesus. It's because you have been given an inordinate spiritual gift. 
And even though to you it seems normal, it's not normal because the, the rest of us who are walking by the need don't see it, don't have it. But if you will alert us to it with joyfulness in our heart, other people will bring their gifts to that need. The leaders and the prophets and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, the givers will fund whatever has to happen. This is the glory of us bringing our gifts together. And I close with this. Verse 6 says, whatever your gift is, use it. And of course, this is not an exhaustive list. If you're, leaving, if you're here today, don't say, oh no, you didn't mention mine. The Apostle Paul is not trying to be exhaustive. He's trying to get us to be reflective. What is it God's given me so I can serve the people in this room and by extension the city, but the context is firstly here in the, in the church um, with practical, ordinary, and beautiful ways. And so you can discern your, your spiritual gifts by examining yourself soberly. What is it that moves me? What is it, how has God gifted me? And uh, so may we, as those who have uh, been given God's boundless grace, turn to one another to love each other in this way. And I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourself as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your proper worship. Amen. Let's pray.